Well, good morning, Faith Family. We are here again in our sermon series called A Season of the Soul, in which we are looking at how to grow spiritually in every season, no matter what season you find yourself in, whether it is summer, uh, spring, fall, or winter. And we do that because God wants to mold us into his son, Jesus Christ. Uh, no matter what season we're in, he can use that. They're all connected. And uh, we're looking at Christ as we go through this series because he truly was a man of all seasons. And so we're finding ourselves here in Luke chapter 5, verse 17 through 611, of what does it mean to have a spiritual summer? Where the light is there longer, where you can see more and enjoy more. But we're really going to focus on just verses 33 through 39 of chapter 5. It's all tied together, that's why I wanted you to read it. But we're only going to look at 33 through 39 in case you're scared. Wow, that was a long reading. Are we going to be here until winter? Okay, (laughs) or the next summer, all right? But what this section really gets at that I wanted you to hear by putting it all together is this. There is a difference between a morally restrained heart and a supernaturally changed heart. There's a difference. Let me give you the principle before we see the picture. Here's a principle. There's a difference between using your willpower, right, to suppress, to restrain, or even to control your heart. And that of having the Holy Spirit supernaturally change your heart by the presence of Jesus. Moral reformation, when you get your act together, it comes by looking at the rules and conforming. That's what it says, what I'm going to do. But spiritual transformation comes by looking at Jesus, and here it is, not being whipped into shape, but being melted with a spiritual understanding of Christ and his person, Christ and his work, and then you get to enter into the joy of the bridegroom. It's, it's come behold this wondrous mystery. And you get melted as you see what he has done for you, and your life changes as you enter into the joy of the bridegroom, as Christ talks about here. That's the principle. Doesn't that sound good? Boy, I want that. How do you get it? Josh, can you break it down for me? Well, Christ gives us a picture to illustrate his principle. The picture that you probably noticed as we read through that, there are two different meals. One was a meal in which the paralytic got lowered into the roof, first mission impossible, okay? Second meal, we have here Christ with Levi. Those teenagers, you know whose house to go to where the cupboards are full. Okay, this is not Zacchaeus who doesn't have any friends. This is Matthew, okay, who is a tax collector who has all the friends and everyone's at his house and they're throwing a party and Christ comes and says, follow me. Two meals, two conversions. Then in chapter six, we have two works on the Sabbath, the morally restrained day, right? They're supposed to be doing something on this day, resulting in two kinds of people. The world's divided into two kinds of people, those that want to justify themselves and those that are waiting for God to justify them. We have the difference between a moral reformation, right, by suppressing, restraining, controlling, that's pictured in the lives of the Pharisees throughout this whole passage. But then you also have, on the other hand, that spiritual transformation that happens by those that meet the bridegroom. We have the paralytic. We have the disciples, we have the tax collector, Matthew, and then we have the man with the withered hand. 
Friends, do you want a moral reformation? Or do you want a spiritual transformation? Do you want to try to get your heart tricked where you jury rig it and you whip it into shape? This is how it would go. You know, I better change or people are going to find out. That's kind of whipping your heart into shape. You're using an outside set of fear to say, I better conform, I better get with the program. Or do you want your heart to melt like a feast where the bridegroom has finally come? That's what we want. So we're going to look at the character of Christ and how he can produce deep change in our hearts for this spiritual summer. The first thing we're going to see here is this. Because Christ has come, joy is justified. That's our first point. Because Christ has come, joy is justified. In chapter 5, verses 17 through 26, joy is justified because Christ forgave a man of his sins and he healed the paralytic. Both. He brings wholeness to the entire person. Not just doing him good so he can walk again, but forgiving his sins. Joy's justified. He left happy. It says he was amazed. He picked up his bed and he went home glorifying God. Who wouldn't be if your whole person was made new? Luke chapter 5, verse 27 through 31. There's joy that's justified because Levi, a tax collector, a sinner, has been called into the adventure of following Christ. You know, a couple weeks ago we saw how Matthew... What, what was called, to, to, I'm not, not Matthew, that, that Levi there, Matthew, but we saw Peter getting called to follow Christ. Isn't it great? Christ can call the fisherman who has to shower after his day of work, right? There's some of those of us that are here that we shower after we've been in work all day, but he also can call the guy that goes to the martini clubs who showers before he goes to work. He's a tax collector. Christ can change anyone. And there's joy that is appropriate there. Joy is really appropriate if you meet Jesus. Because Christ has come, your joy is justified. But we have this other group of people, these antagonists. They are shocked. The Pharisees cannot fathom participating in this opulent feast with Levi, the tax collector. They've already questioned Jesus' authority to forgive sins. They've already, not only have they questioned his authority, but they now have grumbled about his associations. You hang out with those people? You're eating with known sinners? So they question his authority. They grumble about his association. And now in our section, they have a biting accusation. Look at verse 33. They said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. How is that loosely translated? John's guys wouldn't do this. Our guys wouldn't do this. But your guys are? What's up with that, right? They are essentially saying, I know this is shocking, but why is there an open bar here at this party? They are essentially saying, why play when all of this money that you're spending on this opulent feast could be put to good work? Why enjoy the pleasure of someone else's company? Live in the moment. Kick your feet up. Talk a little longer. Sit on the front porch a little longer when there is a Sabbath to prepare for, chapter 6. Well, we don't have time to feast right now. Well, we got to get ready for the Sabbath that's coming. It doesn't square with their perspective of what good, driven, religious people do. 
you know, when you're having a spiritual summer, not everyone is going to be a fan of the joy that you have of enjoying Christ as your Savior. Have you noticed that? It's a little easier to weep with those who weep than it is to rejoice with those who rejoice. It's like the lady who overheard a mother tell her daughter at a worship service, stop that grinning. You're at church. Right? What's the supposition there? That if you want to be spiritual, you should be miserable. The more miserable you are, the more spiritual you should be. That's their thought. But the good news here is that even though they're complaining, their complaint is really used to clarify who is Jesus and what he's come to do. So Jesus offers them a parable. Look at verses 34 through 38. Jesus said to them, Can you make the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece in the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new, will, uh, the new wine will burst uh, the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. Bottom line. After a thousands of years of dreaming, of longing, of hoping, and waiting, the bridegroom is finally here. That's what Christ is saying, right? It's a new day because the bridegroom has finally arrived. I'm the bridegroom. And so a summertime spirituality is one in which you have refreshment, one in which you are engaged, which is why we feast. It's appropriate then. Bask in the sheer abundance of God's goodness. Stay a while. Linger, right? This is no time for a 30-day fast. You know, the only person who wants a wedding to be a day of fasting is the father of the bride. Okay. Not only is he losing his daughter, men, right? Okay, it is a day of fasting. But he's also thinking financially, this will be a great day to fast, okay? I mean, how could I not have to pay for all of these people? Well, we're going to fast. We're going to mourn. And so people get their programs, and you say, I'm not really happy to be here, but don't mind me. I'm going to make my way quietly over there and find my seat. No, oh, that's not what you do at a wedding. You'd be kicked out if you came in like that. And what Christ is saying are, are you kidding me? You, you want to fast right now? The Son of Man, who has been predicted and has been prophesied about, is finally here. And I'm not going to take something new and attach it to something old. You're not going to take new wineskin or new wine and put it in old wineskins. And so I am here to change things. This is not a day for a solemn fast. It is a day of great feasting. And so because, because Christ has come, your joy is appropriate. Your joy is justified. Do, do you remember in the Bible where Jesus is still in the womb of Mary and they go and they meet Elizabeth? And what happens to John the Baptist in Elizabeth's womb? It startles. And, and Mary says, what, what happened? And Elizabeth said, at the sound of your greeting, the child in my womb leaped for joy. Why? Because he knew the bridegroom had come. He knew who was in there. I love how Tolkien put it. This is how he said it. The gospel story is the only story that will pluck that string so the whole heart never stops reverberating and vibrating with joy. 
You know what that means? Not only is your joy justified, but it also means that your joy can be promised. It's promised. That's our second point. Because Christ has come, joy is promised. In other words, hear me, church, joy is inevitable for all of those that meet Christ. And that's where we're going to dig in the trash a little bit, aren't we? Religious people coming to church on Sunday morning, you can probably handle that joy is appropriate. Yeah, I can get that. But some of us, because of what we walk through, we really have a difficult time saying, joy's inevitable? Joy's promised? Are, are, are you serious? But we see here Christ teaching that in verse 39. Let me read it again. No one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says, the old is good. Now you heard Jim read that verse in the context, and it kind of was like, what is Jesus saying? Is he cutting across what he already said? It's a great place to get confused, right? I thought the new was good, and now it looks like in verse 39, the old is good, and it's kind of like, what wine am I supposed to be drinking? Well, the word and is what throws us off. That word and should not be there up at the front. It really should start with no one, because Jesus's use of the analogy ends in verse 38. So now picture, he's ended his analogy in verse 38, and he looks over at these old Pharisees who are committed to their old ways, and he says, you see those old guys over there? They're going to stick with the old thing because they always think the old thing is better. They're not going to try what I have to offer because the old thing has worked for them for so long. You know what I'm talking about? Why try something new? They're missing the summer. And they're missing that when you have a spiritual summer church, it's a great time to try something new. Let me just kind of a little pause here in the sermon. Application. When you're going through a spiritual summer, this is a great time to experiment with try praying a different way. If you've been using prayer cards forever, this might be a time to pray the Psalms. Experiment. Grow in a new spiritual discipline. Maybe it's a great time to start journaling your prayers. If your Bible reading has always been there with a workbook and a notebook, this might be the time where you just get a Bible with not the study notes at the bottom. Because you, you read a verse and then you have this huge you know, section at the end where you're always digging in. It might just be a time to read chapters on end. Because there's new rhythms, new techniques to experiment when there is daylight out. When all you're doing is enjoying Jesus for who he is, it's a great time to bask and maybe to spend more time in, in prayer of praise. Maybe reading longer sections of scripture. Here's the point. If they would have tried something new, they would have been able to experience his festive joy. Because with Christ, joy is inevitable. But unfortunately, many of us are stuck, right? We're stuck in cold, practical, self-restraining practices that we call religion. Here's what it's like. It's like a marriage that is only duty. Duty and love have to go together. If you're only love, then there comes a time where love's not going to come easy, right? You need, you need duty along with it. I've made these promises. But if your love is only duty, if your marriage is only duty, you say, I've made these promises. We're legally married. I have a job to do. You know, it's better for the kids. 
there's no joy. There's no love. There's no enrichment. And C.S. Lewis says duty is only a substitute for love when it's like a crutch. A crutch is a substitute for a leg. Some of us are going to need a crutch at times. But when you have a good leg, get rid of the crutch. Don't let duty be the only thing that gets you here. And that's how some of us approach our spiritual lives as well. I know it's good for me to go to church. It's good for my kids. You know, they need that. I hope they turn out all right. And that, for some of us, is the main impulse behind why we come on a Sunday morning. And I want to challenge you. Are you simply following the law and not enjoying the love of the bridegroom? The attitude is religion is to be endured, not a relationship to be enjoyed. Think of a spiritual summer like this. Spiritual summer is where there is a conductor of a great orchestra directing the world to sing and to shout, Christ has come. He's preeminent. He is the preferred one. If we don't sing out, Christ tells us, the rocks will cry out. That's the kind of joy that's promised for Christ's followers. In the summer, whose heart does not sing when the flag is raised and the national anthem is played at Fenway? Who doesn't get caught up in that? Dave Hilton took me on the only time I went to Fenway. And you get caught up in that. You get caught up in Sweet Caroline somewhere along the way. And you get caught up in Take Me Out to the Ball Game. As an American, you experience that. And guess what, church? The anthem of the church is this. Great is thy faithfulness. This is what it says. Strength for today. Bright hope for tomorrow. You know what a spiritual summer is? You're thinking that there's still hope. I know that when we end the summer, my kids always ask at the end, Dad, I think we can do that again next summer. That's what a spiritual summer is. You have that hope there's going to be a next one. You have that hope that it's going to come around again. And those activities and that enjoyment is there. Christ has finally returned to the garden to walk with us and us with him and to eat of his first fruit. So the question is, how do you get that? You want that? You want to duplicate it on Monday? Here's what my heart does. See if it fits yours. When you hear that joy is inevitable for a Christian, that joy can be promised to you, what do you do? My heart does one of two things. I either get religious or I get suspicious. When I hear that joy can be promised me, I first usually go to religion and I say, I want that. I want that joy you're talking about. I want that joy of sitting there with Christ. But I want that and then I try to go and get it by my old religion, right? I'm going to get more serious about church. I'm going to actually start becoming a practicing Christian, whatever that means. I'm going to pray more, read my Bible more. I'm going to come to church more often. I'm going to live more morally consistent. I'm going to give it the good old college try. So we, we, we hear about joy, and then we can enter it, and we say, okay, I want it. I'm going to go get it. And so basically, I'm going to try hard. I'm going to get more religious. But that's like putting new wine into old wine skins. It can't handle the fermenting grace of the gospel, right? And so real, organic, chemically active, expanding faith is going to smash that old wine skin of just mere external religiosity. Go over to Philippians chapter 3 and see what Paul, the Apostle Paul, thought of his old religion compared to the spiritual summer 
of a relationship with Christ. And see if you can try to have that joy by going through external religion. Paul in Philippians 3 verse 4 says, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks that he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Look at all the religious things that he did. Circumcised on the eighth day. Of the people of Israel. Of the tribe of Benjamin. A Hebrew of the fear of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. All the things that he did, but yet he was miserable. And then verse 9, I'm sorry, uh, in verse 7, but whatever gain I had, what does he think about it? I counted it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth. You hear that? Surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. I count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. At other times, if you're not religious, my heart can hear of the pageant of summer and all of its promised joy, and I get suspicious. This has happened to me more as I've gotten older in life. I say this. You know, I've had joy once before, but it didn't last. No matter what it is, anything you get joy from ultimately will disappoint. My kids love hearing that. Laura's like, oh, preach on, preacher. I mean, you know, but I'm just kind of a killjoy, right? Because you kind of get beat up in life. And have you noticed when things begin to disappoint you, men, do you get detached? You thought this was going to bring you joy, and it didn't. And so now you don't ever want to pursue joy. You get suspicious when the pastor tells you joy can be had in Jesus. And so the, the easier way of dealing with it, because you've already tried, is to say, no, no, that's not possible. And so you detach yourself. You get further and further removed. And so your heart gives a little shrug of somber resignation. You know, I had joy when I first came to this church, and we had these ideas, and then the pastor, poof, not going to try that again. You know what? I'm just going to attend. Somber resignation. We start pulling up the sidewalks. We detach ourselves from everything and everyone, not allowing our heart to get attached to anything because we don't like the pain, do we? And then, so then we lock up our heart. It becomes impenetrable, but eventually, friends, catch this, it also becomes unrecognizable as a heart. Because when you lock up your heart and it becomes impenetrable and you put it in that coffin with no air, you go to try to get it back out again, guess what? no longer a heart anymore. It's completely been transformed. It doesn't beat. Notice that when people who have missed the heart, they begin to only stare at the external hands. The Pharisees in chapter 6, they missed the heart that Christ is the Lord of the Sabbath and that he can provide for his people. And so the disciples are having a spiritual summer. They're like girls at a summer camp. Okay? Track with me. If you've been a girl and you've gone to summer camp, I haven't, okay, but this is what I know it's like, okay? Don't, don't judge me, okay? Girls at a summer camp, about day three or day four in the summer camp, they forget about all the external pressures on them, what they're supposed to be like, what they're supposed to look like, and they begin to chant and to sing and to forget about themselves and just what? Be themselves for the first time. 
They begin to make lanyards and, and, to, and to do silly things just because that's what a girl at 12 is supposed to do. And they try to bring that home and they realize, oh yeah, it's still about competition and grades and who's the prettiest and who's that. And it, it's hard, right? But the disciples are just enjoying being with Jesus and they're eating grain on a Sabbath and working and they forget that it's even the Sabbath because the Lord of the Sabbath is providing it for them. They're just enjoying his feast. And the Pharisees come along and are like, you guys aren't prepared. Like real religious people, we get prepared for the Sabbath the day before. You guys are the unprepared ones and you're having to eat whatever you want. And Christ goes, you're missing the heart. I'm here. I can provide for my own. Stop looking at their hands. You've missed your heart. That's what happens. We begin to stare at external hands, and in the heat of summer, our heart can shrivel. Because we've become so external, we forgot the internal. Is there a way forward? Is there a way that I can actually not be religious? I can actually not be suspicious and try Christ's joy again? Well, the answer is yes. That's only point two in the sermon. There's always three points. So, of course, there's an answer. All right, here it is. Last, number three, because Christ has come, joy is unique. His joy is unique. It's unique because of where it comes from. A joy is justified. Our joy is promised. But how do you get it? What are your summer activities? How do you grow your soul to enjoy God? Here it is. Ready? Sermon in one sentence. It is a fight to see. How do you grow in spiritual joy? It is a fight to see. First, look away from your sacrifices. Look away from your sacrifices. We see the Pharisees, they're the ones that are constantly looking at all of their, at all of their sacrifices. They're the ones who give alms to the poor. They're the ones who fast. They're the ones who prepared for the Sabbath like good religious people do. But if you want to have a spiritual summer, Stop looking at all the things that you do for God so that you can say God owes me. Remember, the Pharisees are the ones that are doing all this so they can justify themselves before God. I'm doing all these things so that ultimately I can make God my debtor. God, you owe me this. Stop looking at your hands and start looking at your heart. How does that bring joy? It sounds negative, right? but it's counterintuitive. Let me put it this way. You never have a birth without a, la a labor, right, ladies? There's never a birth without a labor. There's never a resurrection without a death. And you never have joy without true repentance. It's interesting that of all the things the Pharisees did, you know the one thing the Pharisees did not do? They did not get baptized by John. The baptism of repentance. You need repentance for joy. That doesn't sound too happy, does it? Pastor, i got to repent for joy? Well, guess what? It will humble you. And humility is what brings you into that summer. Because as soon as you're willing to say, Lord Jesus, I'm not worthy. You don't owe me a good life. You don't owe me anything but wrath. I've been trying to control you by my good deeds. The minute you say that, you stop looking at yourself. You stop turning from yourself and you begin to turn and look and call attention to the boundless mercy and grace of Jesus. We did that this morning. His mercy is more. My, my sins and all I'm trying to do, his mercy is more. That's what we're trying to do. So it's a fight to see. In the words of this passage, those who are well have no need of a physician, 
but those who are sick. When you begin to say the disease that could kill me eternally has been healed, you begin to stop looking at what you can do, and you begin to look towards your Savior, which is our last point. Look towards the Savior. Look away from sacrifices. Look towards the Savior. This is where Christian joy is like any other joy. Track with me. Do you rejoice in what you find beautiful? Do you rejoice in what you find beautiful? Okay. It can be a landscape. It could be the seashore. It, it, it could be a mountainscape. It can be even what man has built, a beautiful house, a beautiful car. What you delight in is what you find beautiful. What you find beautiful is what you delight in. And so how does a Christian's joy grow? Begin to look at your Savior and find him beautiful. And as you begin to find him beautiful, guess what you're going to do? You're going you're to delight in him. And, and so it's a fight to see all that we have in our Savior. Jonathan Edwards, he said this. You can tell the difference between a religious person and a Christian, not by their beliefs. Many of you have the same beliefs here. Not even by your obedience. An unbeliever, a religious person, can look more obedient and more committed at times. The difference is that a Christian is attracted to God. Have you ever thought about your, your faith in terms of that? Not just what you believe, but are you actually attracted to God? A religious person finds God useful. A Christian find God beautiful, right? A religious person will obey as long as God is answering his prayers, right? I'll keep doing this. Good for you, good for me. This is a great relationship. God's useful, not beautiful. That's different than Christian joy. A Christian joy finds God inexhaustible. And if God is inexhaustibly happy and joyful in himself, then guess what your joy will be if you feast on him? inexhaustible and full because you're feasting on something that is has no deficiency in and of itself so the fight for joy is a fight to see focus on the greatness of your savior which is the most difficult part in the summer right in the summer you can get dehydrated and when you get dehydrated your vision blurs and so i want to ask you in closing are you a dehydrated fellow sojourner have you been running your eyes over the promises of God like you run your eyes over the wrong number in a phone book? They just mean nothing to you, right? You're just flipping. I need to get to the O's, right? I'm trying to get there. And so wrong number, wrong number. When really the promises of God, we're not supposed to be a conduit like a pipe, right? The water, the blessings of God. You don't want to be a pipe where the water just flows through you. You want to be a what? You want to be a sponge. You want to soak it all in. You want to enjoy it. Why are you hesitating to enter into this joy? Are you thinking, you know, I'll just take a little. Just take a little. That'll get me by. Are you afraid that the promises of God are too good to be true? Yeah, I just need a little bit of God in my life. Well, guess what? Christ says, a little new patch on an old system is not going to stay together. It's going to rip apart. I'm come to make all things new. He wants you to look away from your sacrifices to your Savior and drink. The only qualification this morning is thirst. Do you have thirst? 
Are you thirsty for a mountain spring of joy? Not a trickle that has to be, you know, with a bucket, you know, bucket brigade down the way. Our Savior is a mountain spring of joy. Let's fight together by looking away and looking together in joy. How do you do this? I wanted to just give you a couple of practical ways of how you can do this, and we'll close. How do you fight for joy? We have a problem, and usually some problem stands between us and joy. And so this is how you take the promises of God and you feast on him for joy. And you can do this with anything. Have you lost your joy because of the innumerable sins mounting up against you? Just feel overwhelmed by it. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. Why are you cast down on my soul? Do you feel condemned in the courtroom of heaven? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus, the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Why are you cast down on my soul? Is there any hope that sinners like us could be received into heaven? For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Are you trapped in the dominion of sins that ruin our lives? He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you've been healed. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Have you somehow forfeited all the good things God has planned for you? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? How do you fight for joy? You fight to see. And in the summer, God wants his attributes to be clearly seen, and not just seen, but I'd also say this, rejoiced in. It's one thing to have light, but the picture I want to leave with you is this. We need a campfire in the summer. We want heat, we want emotion, we want joy, we want it to be burning in us. Not just to see it and go, oh yeah, that, that was cool. No! We fight for joy by fighting to see our Savior. I understand that talking about a spiritual summer can be painful for those that aren't in it. And I wanted to offer that after the service, uh, right in here in this prayer room, we're going to have a question and answer time, maybe for 15 minutes or so. But if you have questions about how you can have a spiritual summer and the activities that go along with that, especially when you feel like your circumstances aren't helping you have any joy, I'd love to meet with you for a couple minutes after the service. Let's stand and sing, His mercy is more, and we'll be dismissed.